Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5 tonight. 1 Peter chapter number 5. And uh, what a blessing it is to be in the house of the Lord with you. Isn't God good to us? Man, I enjoyed those good testimonies this morning. I enjoy hearing folks brag on the Lord. Amen. And talk about the goodness of God in their life. And uh, that emboldens me. Amen. Uh, on days when I feel like God's been good to me, it encourages me to hear what He's done for us. Uh, days when I may be in my flesh don't feel like God's been so good to me. It gives me boldness and hope to believe that He's going to be good to me. Amen. And uh, I'm just always helped by hearing what God's doing in people's lives. So I want to thank you for those good testimonies this morning. And I want to thank the Lord for His faithfulness. Uh, you know, maybe we just don't take enough time occasionally just to stop. You know, I, I when I'm here, when I'm at Wall Ridge, and when I'm in front of you folks, I just I feel at home. And sometimes, you know, when you just feel at home and you feel comfortable, uh, you're not mindful. Or when I say you, I mean me. I'm not mindful to stop and just brag on the Lord and thank Him for His faithfulness. He don't have to be faithful, does He? But He is faithful to us. Amen? He don't owe it to us to be faithful, but He is faithful to us. And I'm just so thankful for the Lord's goodness and faithfulness in my life. He's blessed me more than I could ever imagine, man. I mean, uh, if, if He had wrote me a blank check, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have written as big a sum as He has, Brother Ken. That's true. If He had said, you can have anything you want, I wouldn't have had boldness to ask for as much as He's given me. But He's given me above all that we could ever ask or think. And I'm just praising His name. He's awful good to us in. First Peter chapter number five tonight. Let's begin reading in verse number eight. We'll read just four short verses and go to the Lord in a word of prayer. First Peter chapter 5, verse number 8. The Word of God says we are to be sober and to be vigilant because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for your goodness in our lives. Thank you for being more than enough for us. I pray that you'd speak to hearts. I pray that you'd have your will in our lives tonight and that the sweet Holy Ghost would have liberty to take the Word of God and to place it right in our hearts and minds exactly where it needs to be to speak clearly to us of your heart and mind. We know that we'll be changed in as much as we surrender unto your Word tonight and your will. We love you, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, uh, as you read through our few short verses here in First Peter chapter number 5, you begin to pick up on a theme that Peter discusses that really permeates the entirety of the book of First Peter. It's found in verse number 10. Peter says, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, notice this next phrase, After that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. If we read through the book of First Peter, we find that the theme really of First Peter is that of the suffering of the saints. Uh, every chapter of this short book is touched with the topic of suffering. I'll give you some examples. In chapter number 1, verse 1, Peter begins the book by saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Down in verse 6 of chapter 1, he speaks of their uh, troubles and trials, and he says, wherein ye greatly rejoice 
Though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So he begins by saying, listen, I know that you're going through some things. And I know those things you're going through are not desirable. They are not palatable to you. Uh, but take encouragement, take faith, because God is doing something beyond the displeasure of this moment in your life. He says, I know that you're suffering, uh, but trust in the Lord. He's doing something through your suffering. In chapter 2, verse 19, he says this, For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Chapter 2, he describes the attitude we're supposed to have towards suffering. You know what I find remarkable here? How different this is than the world's attitude. Uh, Peter says, listen, you're victims, but don't act like victims, act like victors. We live in a society today that says, I don't know whether you're a victim or not, but I'll let you be a victim if it makes you feel better and carries you standing within society. We live in a world today where a high premium has been placed on victimhood to the degree that people will straight out lie to media and law enforcement and society, even at the cost of the destruction of other people's lives so that they can purchase to themselves that mantle of victimhood to robe themselves in, that blanket to wrap themselves in, that mask to hide themselves behind so that they can gain merit and favor in society. How different is that spirit and attitude from the testimony of the Word of God? The Word of God says, hey, if you're living for God, there's going to be times you're treated wrong and you don't deserve it. But He says, don't go running around filing a petition, trying to get signatures. Don't go running around hiring a lobbyist to come in and see your interest. He said, instead, rejoice for that, that the Lord Jesus would count you worthy to suffer the way that He did. He said, hey, listen, the world can't make you a victim unless you let it make you a victim. Because we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. We have victory in Christ Jesus. How different? I'm just struck by how different that is than the world's attitude. He looks at believers. Let me just say, as a believer in Christ Jesus, the day you got born again was the day you forfeited the right to live life like a victim. I want to be careful with what I say here, but I might just preach for a few minutes before we get to the message. I'm not saying there are not people that are not genuinely harmed in, in society. I'm not saying that don't happen. I'm not saying there are not people that are abused and taken advantage of physically, financially, emotionally. I'm not saying those things do not take place. But I'm saying the moment that you got born again, listen now, are you untethered from this world system and you yoked up with Jesus Christ and how could any man that is on the winning side claim to be a victim? I'm not saying folks ain't done you wrong. I'm just saying Jesus has done you right. You can choose who you want to focus on. Uh, we gave up that right whenever we got born again. How dare we look at God and say, boy, what a pitiful condition you put me in. God didn't put us in a pitiful condition. He lifted us up out of the miry clay, out of the pit. He set our feet upon a solid rock and established our goings. I'm saying we ain't victims, we're victors. We are conquerors in Him. And how dare we say anything contrary to what God has said about us. Chapter 3, he goes on a little further. He says in verse 14 of chapter 3, he says, But if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. 
and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Down in verse 17 he says, For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. He says this, hey, there's times it's the will of God for us to suffer. There's times, I mean, listen, if your Bible read different than mine, go get you the right one. It said, there's times it's the will of God for us to suffer. I know you don't like that. I don't like it no better either. Uh, there's times that, that it might be the will of God for me to suffer. And I'm not happy about that. But hey, it's better if that's the will of God. You say, oh, better than what? Better than anything else. Because the will of God is better than everything else. It's better. He talks about our, our disposition about it. He says we ought to be happy when that takes place. Verse uh, 12 of chapter 4, he talks a little more about it. He says, uh, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, ye shall be glad, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Down in verse 16 he says this, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Verse 19 he says, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. Boy, we might need that verse 19 a little more in these coming decades. Uh, we've been very blessed to live in a country where there has been an unusual, a unique standard of justice for a great long while where men could trust that if they were not outlaws, they wouldn't find themselves outside of the law. But we are now living in a time where it may be, you may have to suffer as a Christian. It may, just the fact that you're a child of God and you're not ashamed of it may be enough to cause you to have to suffer in these days. You say, preacher, what are we going to do? Whatever are we going to do? Well, we're going to, we're, we're just going to commit the keeping of our souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. We're going to recognize that He's the one that's uh, reigns supreme over all of it and we're going to trust Him with it. I'm saying this, all through First Peter, we find this topic of suffering. It is touched on in every single chapter. But there is a sweet word about suffering in chapter 5 in our text. And it is summed up in that little phrase. It says, after that ye have suffered a while. Now that bears witness and testimony to a few things. It bears witness to the reality of suffering. We are going to suffer in this world. Uh, there will be a time in your life, and it might be something you have freshly experienced, something you find yourself neck deep in the middle of, or something that you are staring down the barrel of, but sooner or later we are all going to go through times of unpleasantness in our life, times of deep tragedy and sorrow that we must endure. But i got good news for it. We see here not only the reality of suffering, we see the brevity of suffering. He says, after that you have suffered a while. Can I say that, listen, pain only gets to touch the believer, for so long. Heartache only gets jurisdiction for a short while. He says it's a while, but it's not forever. And I'm glad, listen, there's an end to it. Uh, he says after. Aren't you glad there's an after? <laughs> Aren't you glad there's an after to all this? That it don't last forever, man. If there's an after to this. Uh, if you were to live the life that I live, which involves ministering to people in their most broken moments, sometimes it can be discouraging and disheartening to see people suffering, going through things that you don't understand and you don't have the answer for them. Uh, people facing health difficulties, people facing financial devastation, people facing spiritual warfare or emotional uh, turmoil, relational turmoil in their family. And we, you wish you had a better answer. 
But you still have the right answer, which is this. I do not know what you're going through, but God does. And I know this, that it will not last forever. In this passage, I want to preach to you on this thought tonight, after that you have suffered a while. And really what I want to preach to you on a little bit is about the idea of suffering and what God is doing through suffering in our lives. Notice a few things with me. One, by way of introduction, let me say a word about the sources of our suffering. Look what it says in verse 8. Peter says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. We could say this tonight, that the sources of our suffering or the sources of our affliction are threefold in our life. Now, I want to say that there is no temptation taken us, but such as is common to man. Hey, listen, these same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. I don't know what you're going through, but you ain't the first to go through it. You ain't the last to go through it. And chances are, at this moment, you're probably not the only one to go through it. There are other people that have experienced that suffering. So if suffering is so prevalent, and a Bible believer does not disregard the reality of suffering. A Bible believer does not wrap himself in the delusion of utopia and pretend that suffering does not exist. The name it and claim it crowd may, listen, the, the, the utopia crowd may, but the Bible believer acknowledges and recognizes that sorrow is a part of this human experience. Jesus was a man of sorrows and he was well acquainted with grief. He understood that people suffer. And it is okay and appropriate and even wise for us to view suffering as a reality through the lens of Scripture. You ain't going to get help until you admit that there is an issue. And once you admit there's an issue, you've got to take that thing to God if you want to get help. God does not ignore the reality of suffering. I have sat by too many hospital beds. I have sat uh, in too many grieving parlors. I have sat uh, in uh, too many uh, waiting rooms of emergency or uh, waiting areas of emergency rooms to believe that there's not sorrow in this world. But I'm glad to know this. Hey, there's somebody that's in control of it. What are the sources of our affliction? Peter gives us three. One, he speaks of the subtlety of the devil. The devil desires to see your life in turmoil. The worst thing that could happen to the devil is for you to rest in peace in Jesus Christ. He wants you in the midst of drama. He wants you in the midst of heartache. He wants you distracted from the will, the Word, and the work of God. And so if He can, He's going to come in and tear up all creation in your life to try to get you distracted. You better mark her down, the devil, in his subtle ways. And the Bible describes him as subtle, that he's more subtle than any beast of the field. He is ever seeking an entrance in your life. There are times, just as it was in Job's situation, where there was a direct connection between the hand of Satan and the heartache of Job. And understand, the devil, if he had his way, he would destroy all of us. But now somebody's going to say, well, preacher, that's true. But listen, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Yeah, that's true. That's what brings us to the second source of our suffering. Uh, and that is not only the subtlety of the devil, but look at verse 9. He says this, whom resist steadfast in the faith. I would say this, that the second source of our suffering is the infirmity of the flesh. The devil can be overcome, but there's a problem with it. We are weak and we are feeble. God is sufficient for it. The Word of God is sufficient for it. But if you're anything like me, hey, I'd say this, on my best day, maybe, but most days aren't my best day. There are times when I lean upon the Lord and 
He has victory in my life. But if I'm being honest, that guy I see in the mirror every morning when I wake up, that guy's the biggest problem because he seems to be the one that's always trying to sabotage me. And the reality is sometimes in your life and mine, the sufferings we experience are the product of the devil trying to destroy us. Sometimes they're the product of our own poor choices and our own flesh. There's a lot of things that people blame either on God or on the devil that ought to rest squarely on their own choices and their own children. And maybe it makes us feel better to say, well, it was the devil's fault. Or, well, this is just something God's putting me through. But it would behoove us to stop occasionally and look and say, could it be I've got myself in this mess? Could it be something that I did led to this place? We can resist the devil. We can be steadfast in the faith. But if you're anything like me, there's a lot of days that sadly the flesh gets victory and I am not. So there's the subtlety of the devil. There is the infirmity of the flesh. But there is a third force at work. He says this, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are, notice these last three words, in the world. I would say this, that the sources of our suffering are the subtlety of the devil. The devil seeks to destroy our life. The infirmity of the flesh, oftentimes we give him the opportunity to destroy our life and create problems uh, that are of our own choices. And then number three, the hostility of the world is a source of suffering in the life of the believer. Uh, Listen, even if you're doing everything right, and especially if you're doing everything right, this world will make sure that you don't have an easy path in front of you. We are seeing this in more vivid display today than I think we ever have. Man, the mask has come off. The mask has come off the God-haters, the Marxists, and I, but I'm repeating myself. The masks that, you, you ready? You with me? Y'all got nervous. You alright? I said the God-haters and the Marxists, but I repeat myself. Uh, listen, don't try to divorce the spiritual import away from socialism and Marxism. It is an anti-God political system. By definition, that's what it is. Uh, the masks have come off the, the Marxists. The masks have come off of the God-haters. The masks have come off uh, those that are uh, spirit or satanically energized. And it ain't even anything that's hidden anymore in the world we live in. It ain't even something that's like they ain't even pretending anymore. There is blatant, open hostility against God and the Bible and the people of God. And praise God that you and I still live in a free enough place that we don't see it the way that that it is in a lot of places in the world. But I'm saying there's preachers in uh, quote-unquote Western democracies that are sitting in prison tonight for having church, for preaching the Word of God, for reading the Bible in public. Uh, I promise you, you live for the Lord Jesus Christ. All they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So here are the sources of our suffering. But that's not where Peter leaves it. He, he discloses those things. He reminds us. He encourages us in them. But then he moves beyond that and he discusses not only the sources of our suffering, but the sovereign over our suffering. He says in verse 10, this is one of those, those uh, times that God butts into a passage. I like this. Verse number 10, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, Make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. I'm glad that despite all of our sabotage, the devil's uh, conspiratorial designs and the world's uh, system of hostility, I'm glad that there's still God that reigns supreme over everything. It's almost like Peter saying, hey, I know it's tough. The devil's beating up on you. Your flesh is weak. The world hates you. But God 
still can work in your life. The God of all grace. We see this, that in spite of this reality of suffering, God reigns supreme over all of it. Now that's not to imply that it is God's pleasure to see us suffer. Uh, but it is to say this, that in the midst of our suffering, nothing escapes the providence of God. He takes those things, and you know, the Bible says it better than any theologian ever could. Something you're going to learn is if you use Bible terminology, you'll come closer to telling the truth than you will if you use any other kind of terminology. If you say it the way God said it, you'll say it the right way. And Paul said it this way, for we know that all things work together for good. Now, think about that as a definition of the sovereignty of God. They work together for good. doesn't say that God is working them, but it says they work together. In other words, God is not always the instigating agent behind every action, but He is the providential authority over every single occurrence and event. He's not the one that's making a person do unrighteous, but a person's unrighteousness don't never take him by surprise. He's not the one moving world leaders to ungodliness and wickedness and hatred of all things that are spiritual. But you better believe it has not moved him one millimeter from his throne. He still knows what's happening and he's still in control. And none of it has surprised him. So your suffering in your life, while I think there is a certain noble spirituality to acknowledging and attributing those things to God. It is appropriate to acknowledge that there are times that you may be dealing, hey, I'm glad that God's grace is sufficient, not just when I'm going through a Job moment, but when I'm going through a Toby moment. You say, what's the difference between a Job moment and a Toby moment? Well, a Job moment is when this man's living right, living for God, praying for his kids, and all of a sudden, uh, the uh, Sabians and the Chaldeans show up and uh, they slay all of his servants and they run off with all of his cattle uh, and fire falls from heaven and destroys half of his uh, flock and the wind comes by and blows the house uh, down on his kids. You say, what's a Toby moment? A Toby moment is the moment when you wake up, forget to pray, forget to read your Bible, leave the gate unlocked and all the sheep done run away, uh, and allow the wolves to get in and all the sheep and cattle done got killed and you didn't build the house right in the first place so it just falls over because it ain't built right. I'm glad not just in a Job moment God's grace is sufficient, but even in moments where I'm the cause of my own demise, God's faith and grace is still sufficient. Not just in Job moments, but in Tob moments, God is still good. What does the Bible teach us about the moments of our suffering? Well, I would say a few things tonight. Number one, we know that even in those moments, grace is provided. He says, but the God... Of all grace. All grace. Now, grace can, can, uh, display itself. It can manifest in different forms depending on the situation. And that, in fact, is a distinct character and quality of grace. Sometimes grace can appear in the Bible as regarding physical means. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sakes became He poor, that through His poverty He might be made rich. Hey, I'm glad sometimes the grace of God looks like somebody uh, meeting a financial need because there's times that's what I need. I'm glad, listen, there's times in your life and mine that the grace of God, it means pardon in our life. For by grace are ye saved, uh, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man uh, should boast. I'm glad when I was a lost sinner, God's grace looked like the forgiveness of Calvary. 
I'm glad, hey, in times of my life when I'm struggling and don't know what to do and I feel weak and I feel weary, that grace appears in the way it did for the Apostle Paul when God said, my grace is sufficient for thee, Paul, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. I will therefore glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see, grace has less to do with the matter and more to do with the source. It has to do with God giving us things that we do not deserve so that it might help us along a path that is according to His glory. And I'm glad in the midst of our suffering, whatever the need is, the grace of God is sufficient. I think we very often seek to develop very thorough and flowery theological definitions of grace. And there's a place for that. But I think it would it would be wise for us to recognize that grace has more to do with who dispenses whatever is dispensed than it does with the uh, this, than whatever is given and granted and dispensed unto us. It's not necessarily about whether it's pardon or whether it's strength uh, or whether it's wisdom uh, or whether it's provision. It's about the one that's given it. He's the God of all grace. Not just this grace, not just that grace. Any kind of grace you need and any kind of grace you get, He's the God of that grace. And I'm reminded that in the midst of my suffering, whatever my need is, God can meet that need. We know that grace is provided. Number two, we know that glory is promised. He says, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. Now, what exactly does uh, the, the apostle mean when, when Peter says this? Paul said it this way. He said that Christ in us is the hope of glory. Uh, when we speak about being under the praise of God's glory, what it means is to take us, who is, as we were talking about this in Sunday school this morning, like the songwriter said in The Comforter Has Come, that I, a child of hell, should in His image shine. The glory of God is to take us, uh, faced in Adam's image, another songwriter said, broken and sin-stained and depraved, and to take and transform us, regenerate us, convert us, and, and uh, change us into the image of Jesus Christ. The, when we talk about glory, we're talking about dutiful praise rendered unto someone. If a person says, I want the glory of battle, what they're saying is, I want to be viewed as the conqueror in battle. If they're saying, I want glory in, in my job, what they're saying is, I want to be viewed as being praiseworthy in my job. Whatever it might be, glory is related and correlates to praiseworthiness. When God sought to get to Himself the most glory, now, how would you get the most glory? Well, let's just think about it in terms of a battle. The person that accomplishes the greatest feats of bravery is the one that gets the most, uh, you know, the, the most glory, right? I mean, listen, if, if you... It, it, <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble here. Uh, if you go out and whoop the scrawniest guy on the battlefield, that ain't much glory. But you go out and find the big one, uh, the one that's brutish, the one that, that that's whooping everybody, the Goliath, that gives you the most glory. Now, stop and think about this. What is the greatest source of glory for God? It's that He should take sinners as rotten, as wretched, as wicked as us and conform us into the image of a Son as holy, as righteous, and as precious as His. As one songwriter said, the greatest of all miracles is what Jesus did for me. And so Paul, or Peter, excuse me, says this, don't forget that God hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus. The design of God for your life and mine is that we be made exactly into the image of Christ, that through eternity we might bear witness to the saving grace of God, the transforming power of God. And you say, preacher, what does that 
help me now, right now in my suffering. Well, it ought to help you this way. It ought to help you recognize the brokenness you find yourself in is not what God has planned for you. We see that glory is promised. What you're dealing with right now is but a step on a path. It is not the destination. You may feel as though there is no end to your suffering, but don't forget, God has already appointed. Man, uh, it's funny. Uh, you, you know one of the great tragedies of the Calvinists is that every right understanding of the doctrine of predestination in the Bible is completely gutted in their teaching by their wrong application and interpretation. There are some things that are predestined in the Bible. And it ain't that you're predestined either to go to heaven or to go to hell. You ought to really study some of the things that God has said are predestined because they are precious truths. And you know what one of those things is? We are predestined to be conformed to the image of God's dear Son. God has foreordained that everyone that believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, that when the final chapter is written, will look just like Jesus Christ in our righteousness in our morality, in our sanctity, will look like Him. So in other words, where we're at right now, man, this ain't the end of all of it. This ain't the end of all of it. And that sort of leads him to his third thought. He, he tells us that we know that grace is provided. We know that glory is promised. And therefore, it is reasonable to say that we know that grief is passing. He says, after that you have suffered a while. If this ain't the end, then that must mean that this is soon passing away. Uh, as one fellow said, listen, it didn't come to stay. It came to pass. It didn't come to take up residence and root in our life. And you may say, well, preacher, my entire life has been touched by sorrow and suffering. You know that may be. But you understand that this little glimpse of life that we experience now is uh, literally but a speck in the universe in comparison to what eternity is. I mean, we cannot even fathom how minuscule this time period is. I don't want to say inconsequential because it's very consequential. What we do here determines what we experience there. But understand that this is just but a passing moment. Paul says that this were a lot affliction which is but for a moment. Just a moment. Just a moment. I remember hearing one time years ago, uh, Dr. Tom Malone was preaching. He was talking about the twinkling of an eye. And he said, you know what the twinkling of an eye is? He said, when you're sitting at a red light, the moment between when that light turns green and when the person behind you honks their horn, that's the twinkling of an eye. What is that? It's but a moment. And our grief, whatever you're experiencing, it will pass. I'm not saying life will get any better on this side of glory, but I'm promising you, if you're a child of God, it all gets better on the other side of glory. And I understand in this moment we must just all seek to embrace that by faith because we don't know what it feels like, and we don't know what that experience is, but understand that we are not groping in the dark for some word of, of enlightenment and illumination about that. The Word of God speaks plainly that as we leave this life, for believers, we're entering an existence with no sorrow, with no death, with no separation, with no suffering. Death will have had its day and will no longer be able to touch our life. So we see that grace is provided and glory is promised and grief is passing but we notice, and this really is the, is the centerpiece of this text, we see this list of things that God is doing in our life through our suffering. And we could maybe make this statement, we know that growth is produced. God is doing something through your suffering. I may not be able to understand entirely all of it, and you may not be able to understand entirely all of it, 
But if you're a born-again believer, if you're a child of God, you can rest in the fact that nothing you endure is for naught. There is a purpose behind it. What is God doing? Well, let's look at this list very quickly and then we'll close. Verse uh, number, uh, well, where am I? 10. Verse number 10. Look at the very first thing. He says, after that you have suffered a while, what's God going to do? Through that suffering, what will He do? Number one, here's what He'll do. He'll make you perfect. Now, somebody's going to say, preach us. Some, some of us are already there. Amen. <laughs> but, but the word perfect here, of course, does not mean morally sinless but rather it means complete. I'd say it this way. Suffering develops fullness in our lives. Suffering is given and, and permitted in our life to add and fill out areas that are lacking in our life. Things like patience. Things like faith. Things like empathy, compassion. Things like perspective. There are some qualities that we can only develop through suffering. Listen, there's some, there's some plants only, only grow in a perfectly balanced climate, but there's some, there's some plants, it's gotta have the heat to grow. Uh, part of the reason we can't grow hot peppers up here is it don't get hot enough atmospherically. Uh, if you wanna get into some serious hot peppers, you get those that have been raised down in Mexico, you know why? Cause it's just hot all the time, all the time. And, uh, and I think they, I think they, um, they kill bugs with cocaine too, so that helps as well, but, at least that's what the television tells me. I don't know. I'm not very. I'm not a man of the world. <laughs> but I get to pick me up from them hot peppers. Somebody say amen to that. They lay me low later. <laughs> but at that initial, they give me a pick me up, don't they? Don't they, Ken? But I, I, I would say this: there are things in your life you're only going to experience. You're only going to develop through the heat of affliction. Some some plants, some crops only bear fruit, and they only grow, and they only develop in the heat in the suffering, in the affliction. Uh, we have seen what it does to a society to live soft for a hundred years. And it's not made us better. Now, listen, I, I ain't giving up my air conditioning, and I bet you ain't giving up yours. But we recognize that there are certain qualities that when people live in a unstressed condition that are uh, developed in their life. Some of them maybe are good things, but some of them are probably bad things too. We live in a day today where people can write uh, lengthy uh, poems of prose regarding social justice issues, but they can't balance a checkbook. I'd say we're living in a society where maybe we have a little too much free time. In other words, there are certain things that are only developed through the heat of affliction, through stress, uh, through constraint in our life. And there are certain things. You ain't going to go take a class on patience. God's going to have to, God's going to have to force you to learn that lesson. You ain't going to go and take a Bible study on, on suffering and experiencing suffering. God's going to have to teach you that the real way. But we understand this, that if suffering were not necessary, Jesus would not have gone through it. The Bible says that the, uh, that God hath made the captain of our salvation perfect through suffering. Again, not meaning morally spotless, for he was already morally spotless. But it means fully equipped and fit to a task. And the Bible says that though he were a son, yet learned the obedience through the things which he suffered. Suffering was additive to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. If it could give something to him, how dare we think that we don't need nothing from it. If it could even add things to the ministry and resume of the Son of God, then why would we think that we are already complete without? There are certain things that it adds to your life. Suffering develops fullness. Number two, suffering develops faithfulness. 
Not only is he going to make you perfect, but he's going to establish you. I like that. I don't, I, I don't, I don't know if, uh, us hillbillies, uh, picked up on some old English there or if we're just saying it quick. I like that word establish. It don't need an E. Somebody say amen to that. It's just establish it. And the word establish here, listen to what it means. It means to fix in a place. That's what it means. To fix it in a place, like nailing something down. You know what suffering does? Suffering keeps us close to the Lord and develops faithfulness in our life. I've often brought this up, but I'll mention it once again. You know, isn't it amazing in all that God did for Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the grandson of Saul, who was lame on both of his feet down in that broken city of Lodabar. Uh, God presses on the heart of King David to lift him up out of that poverty and that brokenness and bring him and restore him as a son of the king and give him the lands back uh, that had belonged to his father uh, and uh, give him a place of esteem at his table. But the very last thing that Second Samuel 9 says about Mephibosheth is that he was lame on his feet all the days of his life. The same God that had plucked him out of Lodabar could have fixed his feet, but he never did. And you know the reason why, don't you? Because if he had, he would have wandered from the king's table. In our life, oftentimes, I don't know about you, man. I, you, you may not be like me. I hope you're not, if we're just being frank. I hope you're a better Christian than I am. But my times of straying often come when things have been going well. When things is bad, man, I'm huddled up at the feet of Jesus, scared to even uh, poke my head out from under the blanket. But when things is going well, then all of a sudden I'm, you know, I'm feeling pretty good and I might start making some of these decisions. And there's a few things I want to straighten out. And next thing you know, I'm in a mess. So you know what suffering does? It keeps us faithful. keeps us close to the feet of Jesus. keeps us from wandering away. And uh, you know this. You've seen this in raising your kids. I've seen it in raising mine, man. When they're sick, they want to be close to their parents. And particularly to mama. They want the comfort. They want the protection. I mean, no baby is more cuddly and snuggly than when they don't feel good. Sometimes uh, we just, you know, sometimes we we uh, we, we just give them things, make them sick, just because we want to snuggle them. Just me, not you. Okay, don't don't mention that out in public. Don't tell CPS that. <laughs> now, of course, we wouldn't do that. Can't even make a joke anymore. You have to go back in with full surgeons general. I do not poison my child. But I mean. You know, the most precious, the most affectionate that a child is, is when they're hurting, when they're suffering. And you know, there's a truth there for us as well. The most affectionate we are to God is when we're hurting. Suffering, it, it develops faithfulness. Then he says this, he's going to strengthen us. That word strengthen here, it means to make you to stand. Uh, we could say this, suffering develops fortification in our lives. Just like a muscle, faith, steadfastness, and resolve can only be developed through pressure, strain, and opposition. We must suffer to build spiritual strength. Uh, you know, you understand this to be true. If you've ever done any kind of weight training or anything like that, you can make it easy on yourself and pick up the light weights, but that ain't going to build the muscles. And you can work out with the light weights as much as the guy is that's working out with the heavy weights, and he's going to build muscle faster than you will. You know why? Because muscle needs opposition to strengthen. And in our life, we need opposition to strengthen. Uh, a lot of us are not ready to stand because we've never had to stand. We've never had to. We've never had to withstand anything. Uh, we're seeing this in society, I mean, at large. It's, I'm terrified about this with our military. Uh, you may not like anything I'm about to say. That's fine. It's probably not the first thing I've said today that you've not liked. 
But you know, there has not been for like the past like two years or so, there has not been, somebody will help me with the terminology, there has not been a physical test of fitness of record in our U.S. military. They just haven't been doing it and there's political reasons why. That terrifies me. Can I tell you something? You do not want someone in the shape I am in being the one that is tasked with keeping you safe. You want somebody that can run farther than I can run. And it bothers me to think that there is no metric, no standard that has to be met. Because sooner or later we may find ourselves in a place of opposition and warfare. And when we do, you know what we're going to find out? Those that have been never been made to stand won't be able to stand. And spiritually in your life and mine, part of our biggest problem is we ain't never had nobody tell us that we're wrong and us have to prove them wrong. We've never, we've surrounded ourselves with nothing but folks that already agree with us. And we just would absolutely have a fit if anybody ever looked at us and said, I don't believe the Bible. We wouldn't know what to say next. We have never faced opposition. You know, part of the reason God brings suffering into your life and mine is to ready us for the inevitable opposition that we experience in life. And I'm really not even talking about the defending of the truths of the Word of God. I'm saying even in a spiritual sense, you may try to run from the battle, but sooner or later the battle will find you. So God permits suffering in our life to strengthen us for that task. And then notice what it does. Man, I like this. Look at this last phrase. He said He's going to settle you. (laughs) That sounds like a threat, don't it? He's going to settle you. I'm going to threaten somebody like that. I'm going to threaten my kids like that from now on. I'm going to say, son, if you don't quit, I'm going to settle you. (laughs) What does it mean? Settle here means to lay a foundation. It means to lay a foundation. Now, you don't lay a foundation if you ain't going to build something on it afterwards. Could I say it this way? Suffering develops fullness and faithfulness and fortification, but suffering develops a foundation in our life. Suffering gives you a foundation upon which God can build and do greater things in your life. Every time God permits suffering in our life, it's because He's laying the foundation for something bigger He's getting ready to do in our life. He doesn't do anything for no reason. And you may not understand the calamity or the misfortune, and I don't even, I ain't even going to use the word, there ain't no misfortune, whatever that is, the suffering and affliction that you experience. You may not be able to understand it, but you can be guaranteed this. It is not for no reason. God is laying a foundation upon which to build something even greater. To do something even further. Uh, you, uh, that may terrify you. It may encourage you. It may burden you. It may bless you. But it is true nonetheless that God cannot take us to new levels in our spiritual development if He does not first build a foundation upon which to build our spiritual development. Uh, if He just all of a sudden took and, and treated us like the Apostle Paul, we'd just, we'd lay down and quit. If God took someone from being a brand new baby Christian and treating them the way that He treated the Apostle Paul, the way the things that Paul experienced towards the end of his life, we'd probably just fold in on ourselves and just crawl up like a paper cup being crumpled up and quit. How did God do that? Paul at one time was a baby Christian. What did God do? Well, he, he dragged him away to the desert for a couple of years and taught him some truths directly from the mouth of God. What was he doing? He was building a foundation. Uh, Paul would experience probably more suffering and affliction than any other uh, chief person in the New Testament church. Uh, he goes along the big catalog of things that he experiences in uh, the means and manner of affliction, being, uh, being uh, stoned and left for dead and beaten with a whip and being afflicted, being uh, thrown to wild beasts at Ephesus. 
You say, preacher, how did Paul get to be such an amazing Christian? Well, because he was stoned and whipped and shipwrecked and beat half to death and uh, fed wild animals at, at Ephesus. All those things provided a foundation for a greater development in his spiritual life. And you need to understand, suffering does not mean God's done with you. It means he's getting ready to deal more deeply with you. It doesn't mean he's saying, oh, I'm done with them. I, I, they're not even worth protecting anymore. Instead, what it means is God saying, hey, it's time to take things to the next level. And i got to get them ready in order to do that. So we see here, and I'll just read them to you. We know that grace is provided, glory is promised, grief is passing, growth is produced. But I like this last phrase, verse 11. I'm just going to mention it and be done. He says this, to him, to who? To God. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I'd say this. You say, preacher, what about all this suffering? Well, you know, we know one way or the other, we know that God is praised through our suffering. Uh, it doesn't say you should render him glory. It says to him be glory. It, even if we don't give him the glory, he'll still get the glory. This is something that we don't get, man. We think he only gets glory if we give him glory. Maybe in this little snapshot, this little snippet of life, that's true. But sooner or later, it's the whole thing's going to be told. Uh, one of these days, we're going to get to heaven and the whole thing's going to be told. Whether you tell it now or not, He will get glory in your life. And whether you understand it or not, He will get glory. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about us being under the praise of His glory. And you know, probably the most vivid example of this is in John chapter number 11 when Lazarus is raised from the dead. And Jesus makes this statement about the death of Lazarus. He says, this sickness is not unto death but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified thereby. Uh, you, could, you could enter anything. This sickness is not unto death. Hey, listen, this trial is not unto destruction. Uh, this discouragement is not unto devastation. Uh, this uh, financial uh, uh, burden is not unto bankruptcy or impoverishment or financial devastation. God's intent is not to destroy us. It's to derive from our life the maximum amount of glory. Now you say, preacher, what should my attitude be? Well, it should be like the Apostle Paul, whether by life or by death, we want Christ to be magnified. That was Paul saying, like Job did, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. That was Paul's way of saying, if he gets the most glory by destroying me, then I want him to destroy me. But understand that God does not derive a joy out of seeing our suffering. Rather, He's trying to elicit the most glory unto Him that He is worthy of, and He is worthy of all the glory that He possibly can out of our life. So I don't know what you're going through, but I do know God knows what you're going through. And I do know that you can know these things. You can know that God's grace is provided. God's grace is sufficient. You can know that glory is promised, that one of these days God will produce all this in such a way that will be unto His glory. You can know that grief is passing. This thing will not last forever. You can know that growth is produced in your life through your suffering and you can know that God is praised through what you're going through. Will you trust Him with your suffering? Let's bow together this evening as a musician comes to play. The altar is open and you're invited to come. If God spoke to your heart, you don't have to wait. You just meet Him down here. He's waiting on you, so just meet Him down here in this altar if He spoke to your heart tonight. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus, we ask it in His name.